How are clinicians working with professional athletes to enhance their performance, resiliency, and well-being? How can we be sure that the kind of insights gained in that process are kept absolutely safe and in the hands of the subject? And how's that going to benefit a regular guy like me? Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast that's focused on all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Dr. Leslie Saxon. She's an interventional cardiologist and the executive director of USC's Center for Body Computing. Back in the dark ages of 2005, Dr. Saxon saw that her patients whose implanted devices were able to transmit data daily were doing better than those who weren't. That insight has led to a remarkable 13 years of study at the Center for Body Computing, convening the best thinking in the world on clinical research, healthcare technology and data platforms, and the regulatory policies that govern them. Prepare to be as knocked out as I was by Dr. Leslie Saxon. Leslie, thanks so much for being with us on DataPoint today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So I've been following your work for a long time since back in my days with uh, Humana's Innovation Center in the mid-2000s. And I would love for you, uh, if you would, to sketch in a little bit of background for our listeners about the Center for Body Computing. What led to it? uh, How did you come to bring it together and sort of how its vision has evolved through the years? Certainly. I started the Center for Body Computing at the University of Southern California just about 13 years ago. And at that time, I was uh, chief of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, uh, working on uh, building out our Heart Institute. And I'd had a pretty traditional academic cardiology career. I'm an interventional cardiologist. Mm -hmm. I uh, am in a field called cardiac electrophysiology. I implant defibrillators and implantable devices in the heart to treat sudden death and treat heart failure and other arrhythmias through procedures. At any rate, the devices that I implant became capable of network transmission, Uh, and meaning that if you put an implantable defibrillator in someone, which at that time could cost $60,000, typically you would see people in clinic and reprogram or interrogate that defibrillator every four months. And we suddenly became capable of understanding and getting data from that device and how it behaved in the heart every day. So I was fascinated by that. And I worked with a a manufacturer, uh, two of those devices to create a research consortium around the device data that was coming in every day. Mm -hmm. And because only about half the country who, uh, patients who had those defibrillators were hooked up to the remote system because it was new and adoption wasn't immediate. We were able to do a study showing that those patients that did transmit daily versus those that were seen in the traditional way lived like 3.9 times as long. So there was additional benefit benefit to the connectivity itself. And that was a, a very profound observation that was uh, held up over subsequent publications. And the reasons for that, I think, were, were multiple. It's very interesting that patients weren't seeing their own data. But I think the reason that they live longer and did better was because we were picking up conditions early when they occurred that we could intervene in earlier and we were able to create a more continuous model of care and really leverage that device as a connected device at the hub of their healthcare. So I was fascinated by that and at that time I was also spending 80% of my time in planting devices. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be more present in a more continuous way and to really leverage all the capability of the device. 
it's almost like buying an expensive car and never knowing how to program the radio or drive it, you know. <laughs> right. So I wanted, I, I, I saw this new way of connected care as a more continuous model of care, and I wanted to explore it. And this was about the same year as the iPhone came out. So I was fascinated by the iPhone, and I loved it, and I transitioned from my BlackBerry or whatever. And I thought, what if this iPhone were, the, were another hub? Because I'm using this to, to, to interact with multiple areas of my life, and it offers convenience. And um, it, what if this is a portal for me to help direct patients in their care and for patients to be more empowered in their care, not just for their device, but to manage the entirety of their disease? So at the time that I started this, that, remember, there was no cloud. Uh, data visualization, data storage, a lot of things were, were you know, questioned. There wasn't the same kind of integration um, of other digital technologies. So uh, it was a little bit science fiction, and I kind of mm-hmm. leveraged my traditional career in implantable devices and FDA clinical trials and into that. And my friends did a lot of favors for me and kept, would come to my conference, and I started making important relationships with technology companies and within my own university in data analysis through our computer uh, science school. And I started thinking about what is the narrative? What is the story we're telling patients daily as they interact with their care? Started working with cinematic arts because we think in narrative and healthcare is very emotional. And how do we educate patients through narrative to deliver this continuous, deeply personalized care? So it brought me into this just fascinating multidisciplinary area, which is I think the reason why the center has done well and is really a convener of different specialties and expertise that are needed to develop the digital health space. I want to call out for the listeners just a quick reminder. You know, we're talking about 2006, 2007. There really were, as far as I know, no such uh, organizations in, you know, in medical schools or academic medical centers. So this was something that was really new, yes? There, there wasn't there wasn't a template you could follow like uh, like folks have today. No, it was very new, and it was really um, I think a, a combination of of things that allowed it to happen. I was fairly senior in my career, so I had some credibility, and I could I could you know use that. The other thing was that USC was a place, and I I went to USC from UCSF, top one or two medical schools in the country, and I did mm-hmm. that because USC was very interested in driving interdisciplinary work across the university. And I bought into that vision and they allowed me, it was a very permissive environment to imagine and innovate. And uh, I'm very grateful to the institution and the university for having that openness. While I was implanting cardiac devices, I was also doing studies in the USC football team and the USC athletics and evolving our programs to include not just chronic disease, but human performance to understand how digital tools could enhance human performance. Uh, and that helped me evolve this idea of virtual care and digital, uh, a separate system for digital health care, patient empowerment, this idea that it wasn't about just sick care when you entered the walls of a hospital or wellness. It was about life care. It was about the continuum and how all of these digital services would democratize information enough where patients could be self-diagnosed, have the information they need to manage themselves and physicians and traditional providers could sort of practice more at the top of their license, do what they did well and the role of technology companies and retail and others. So Mm. it, it, it's just been this incredibly um, important and and lucky, better lucky than good a little bit because (laughs) cloud computing happened, video storage, all, all that Mm. stuff and 
the evolution of um, sensors. It's all happened. So that's the better lucky than good part. Well, even the concept of the empowered and connected patient uh, was really evolving in this place and in others around the same time. It's kind of amazing the convergence of things that has helped these um, these concepts that were really, I think, quite radical in the mid-2000s to the point where they're relatively familiar today, at least as uh, as goals. Um, but y- y- one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Leslie, is when you when you think about the center and its areas of focus, clearly a big part of that work has been about the integration of technology and clinical practice, uh, about the the inclusion of of data and virtual care. How do other aspects of healthcare that are so important in delivery, like um, you know, the regulatory environment and the policy environment, how how do those play into uh, the way that you see your remit today? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's it's continuing to evolve and evolve and very rapidly. So, I would say that the center works in three places: one, um, uh, research, right, clinical research, and mm-hmm. so. With these digital solutions, we need to do the research to show they're safe and effective and to describe how they work and how they relate to traditional care as well as more disruptive players in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So we work in that area. The second area is where does all this stuff live and how does it integrate? And so that's kind of the platform concept. What does this healthcare platform look like? And then the third thing is, is regulation and policy. And initially that was just us working with the, I think the, you know, the primary regulator in the world, the FDA, and really looking at how do you regulate software as a medical device? Software is global; it's not, it's borderless. How do we translate that to the world? How how do these? How, what is digital health regulatory policy going to look like? And then that evolved into, with a lot of new digital health businesses, et cetera, that evolved into, and in, in most the last three years very intensively. What what about cybersecurity because mm-hmm. of all the breaches that occur just occur just in society, and what about privacy rights? Yep. Um, because cybersecurity and privacy are intimately related. So we have another bin that's regulation, privacy, and cybersecurity. And that area is fascinating because while the FDA has evolved some very important regulatory policies on how to regulate software and digital health, and I think done so with great vision, they've also evolved now policies around cybersecurity and building it in by design and digital products. The next kind of frontier is privacy, and as you know, that's playing out in the in the culture in many different ways, mm. uh, and it's also um, something that we have no legislation around in this country. I mean, the first major piece of legislation was the California Privacy Act, which is undergoing a, a, a revision before it comes law, and that may become that may be the the model for federal policy, or some federal policy could trump that, but. That's more based on a, um, the, the pr- large privacy legislation in Europe, um, the GDPR. So, right. so that's like really, really new and happening. And the other part is, if you really want to create an innovative sandbox, you don't want to overly legislate, right? Sure. Yeah, you have to protect individuals from exploits. One of the things that I noodle on a lot that's kind of fascinating is a lot of the companies that are in a position, technology companies, to really evolve healthcare in humane and important ways also have horrible records in terms of privacy and um, personal data exploits. Mm. And then there are other companies who are in great positions who have better privacy policies like like Apple, for instance. And uh-huh. the question is, you know, do, do the cultures live in that 
those companies not just to present the technology stack or some solutions, whether it's an AI or deep brain solution from Google that could be incredibly important for medicine, but how are they going to handle their business policies as they relate to healthcare? It's just an evolving space, and our, you know we need to make sure, in my view, that we don't overly legislate. How do you protect the individual yet not overly legislate so these business models can evolve and, and we can be leaders in the United States or in I think we're leaders in medicine, we're leaders in tech, we should be leaders in digital health tech, right? There's no reason why we shouldn't. Absolutely. So how do we create this environment yet protect the individual in ways that have, the individual has fabulously not been protected by technology companies and been very exploited? So that's a that's a really important conversation, right? Because this stuff is not going to grow and scale and be adopted and solve problems if it can't be trusted. That's right. And it does feel like, you know, one of the real questions of our time, uh, in fact, in the second show of this uh, of this podcast, I talked to Jane Saracen Khan about the fact that there were these two elements that had risen to the top of public consciousness, one of them being they want for uh, better, they want for technology to be applied uh, through innovation to their healthcare. But secondly, they want their data, they want to own their data and they want to keep it private. And those two things do feel like they're on a collision course sometimes. Yeah, and I think, you know, cybersecurity, data privacy, you you really do have to have kind of an initial ethic and constitution of what you are and aren't going to do. So you really shouldn't exploit a patient or their data. You should not sell their data, right? Um, I, in my view, I think that uh, we we have had a lot of work evolving these these concepts with Stanford Libraries and others. We're working with uh, the FDA and cybersecurity, and you know the privacy pieces is, is very very um, important and and interesting. Um, there is absolutely um, the need for people to be able to have the ability to have their personal health records in a way they can understand. I mean, right. that's just table stakes. Apple realizes that. They, they've made a, you know, agreements with the VA and others. People have a right to their data in a way they can understand that they can port and, and utilize to advance their care. Traditional healthcare service model, once people leave our doors, is horrific, and it's going to be disrupted and it deserves it. We have held patients hostage for information for other things, and we put an undue burden on physicians. Impossible job to be a physician yeah. and deliver a service model of healthcare with all the encumbrances. So it's no wonder, and, it, and we deserve to be disrupted. And part of my interest in the space was my frustration, and because I love patient care at my core, and not being able to meet all the needs of the patient, looking for other ways to do it yet to still allow people to feel cared for mm. and to allow me to extend my expertise and those of other medical professionals who sacrificed a lot to get their learning and expertise to the world, right? How do you jailbreak knowledge? It's digital. How do you provide the highest in healthcare to everyone in the world, even if they don't have a healthcare infrastructure? So I've been much less focused and passionate about you know, I, I understand the need, you know, people have focused a lot on a one-payer system or other things in this country to mm. get some minimal standard of health care for people. I look at digital and say, no, what I'm interested in is giving the four seasons of health care to everyone, not dumbing down to a minimal version of health care, but to really um, provide everyone with a very highest level of health care. And theoretically, digital and virtual health care should be able to do that. 
So let's uh, pick that up, Leslie, when we come back from our break. We're going to be right back on the Data Point podcast with Dr. Leslie Saxon from USC's uh, Center for Body Computing. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Spire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Blue Spire knows how to help you reach, communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint, from the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touchpoints that matter. Welcome back to Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. Our guest today is Dr. Leslie Saxon from USC's Center for Body Computing. Leslie, before we went into the break, you were talking about the transformation of healthcare and your sort of basic premise that the answer wasn't necessarily in the policy or the structure uh, around healthcare, more around how could we leverage digital to ensure that everybody has access to the best possible care scenarios. And that really leads to some discussion around virtual care. Um, can you tell us about some of the work that you've been doing uh, and have been seeing in the marketplace um, that has uh, sort of encouraged you in terms of the, our, our progress in that regard? Yes. I mean, I think the basic good news here is that all the tools seem to be there now. For right. instance, I know you've worked a lot um, in the area of social networks. So how do we leverage the billion plus people in social networks? How do we leverage social network behavior toward health? Not just AI analytics of data to predict um, conditions before they happen, although that's very important. You know, nowadays you can predict potentially uh, disease occurrence or risk for things like postpartum depression from social network feeds or even mm-hmm you know, what area of the world may be subject to violence or genocide or something from that type of thing, right? That's important. But I'm not just talking about that. I mean, how do you leverage those networks to create healthy behaviors and personalized patient-directed healthcare? Um, How do you, how do you, the, the, the culture is there within social networks. I don't think they're being leveraged for, for health enough. Mm -hmm. The second, the second area is um, just how do you provide medical grade um, information over wearables or phones or watches in order to really create this continuous environment of diagnostics, healthcare, and education. So a lot of what we do is, um, and a lot of this that's been very liberating for me personally as a physician is, so I mentioned earlier, I may put a $60,000 defibrillator in someone to shock them out of their malignant arrhythmia mm-hmm. or help pace their heart if it gets too low or it doesn't, their heart doesn't beat well enough. But Really, the reason they're getting that device is because they have a condition called heart failure, which is their big burden to manage that disease. They're on five medications. They have restrictions on what they can eat and do. So really, the way I should have been thinking about that all those years was, how do I use this connected hub to manage the heart failure in every aspect of it, how it impacts their family life, their mental health, their their fiscal health, and how do they? how do I provide the tools to help them manage their disease, and then how do I leverage the network, the care network around them to help everyone help them 
and to have them help other people with the same disease and almost like an AA model, right? Yep. And keep everyone in this virtuous loop. So we work and we build the software and we try to understand the ethical and other privacy and implications of that and to show that that works. And then we try to understand how that flow uh, interacts with the actual flow within traditional healthcare, which is a very serious, very expert, right, model of, of care, but again, needs to be disrupted in many ways, but, but it still has to relate to that. So that's the kind of work we do in, in regulated healthcare. How do we take things that are huge social and medical issues like mental health, homelessness, mm-hmm. because it is a healthcare problem, uh, homelessness in many ways, whether it's addiction or mental health or what it is. How do we mm-hmm. build psychiatric platform, care platforms around that that can stabilize people to get you know, into housing or other things? How do we support people with depression or mental health disorders? How do we protect our military and, and other people from the suicide epidemic? What is the digital support structure that recognizes risk and that helps intervene for self-management? And then how do we leverage communities around that to prevent these disasters? Um, and then we take that also into human performance. Uh, in our military work, it's a matter of, okay, we know we're going to be um, involved in these global conflicts. We know that we have to improve the resiliency and the well-being of the people uh, with some of the hardest jobs in the world that are training to to fight these 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 wars on our behalf. How do we maximize their training? How do we maximize and build in resiliency? And how do we keep them healthy even after through and then after their military career? And we have the same approach with with athletes, so that that individual, we're representing their interests. They understand their load. They understand their readiness, whether they have to fight or perform or whatever, and they understand that in a much more holistic way. Because if we can do that and get those continuous measures, we can then cultivate those behaviors and that that health within them to sort of maximize them. That and 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 we've had some very good luck, and some we've made I think some very important observations in that in the military. We've had a, a number of studies going on at, at Camp Pendleton uh, Marine Base in, in California between. Mm-hmm. San Diego and Los Angeles, where we've been able to, in a, in a fairly disciplined way, using software and Apple Watches, actually measure the mental and physical status of trainees pretty continuously during rigorous training in land and water. And by assessing their continuous mental and physical sort of resiliency, we've identified um, areas that we can now study to intervene in and say, okay, this 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 trainee looks as if he may be degrading from the training mentally and maybe he's at risk to drop out of the training. What can we deliver to that person to help them finish this and go on to the to the next phase? But that's not just for that training scenario. That's for when they go into operational sure. units, help, help maintain them. And that, to me, is a, a very profound and interesting area of work that can generalize to the entire population of performers because we're it all... Is- performers, right? Exactly. And everybody may define that a little bit differently, but, you know, our health is sort of the underlying enabler of being able to perform in the way that we want to. So I think, yeah, that is completely fascinating. And I'm really curious about it because I know that this has been an area of focus uh, for you. And I'm just curious, you know, in the examples that you cited relative to uh, I guess monitoring um, the the physical and mental signs that you're getting from people in these training. Are you able also then 
you know, is your team involved in helping to design potential interventions uh, for uh, for these situations? Or, you know, is that sort of not part of the remit? I'm really curious about how, you know, how that partnership with the military works. No, absolutely. So the initial goal was to just show that we could do it, hmm. uh, that we could actually measure people continuously in like physically difficult conditions. And now we can use this technology and these observations that we can do it. We can do it accurately to to plan interventions um, and to expand the scope of this. The issues are really, and it's been a lot of personal growth for me, you know, as a physician to say, look, it's not just measuring where my comfort zone is, the physiology or the metabolics of these individuals. It's where are they, you know, in terms of um, the space between their ears? Mm-hmm. How does their baseline personality, how they're feeling daily now that we can get these measures, what they're eating, um, how they're sleeping, how does all this factor into their performance and readiness? Um, and then how do we make this data actionable to where we can actually intervene and, and make a difference? How does this change training? How does this change operations? How does this translate into the, both when they're deployed and when they're back? What does that software package look like at each at each level? Yeah. Um, and that's that's just an incredibly rich area. Then the other thing, back to the privacy, is how do we make sure the individual is not exploited? In a professional sports environment, we think about this a lot in our professional sports work. A lot of this data we've never seen before. So how do we keep it from being politicized and disadvantage a player, for instance, who's under a contract if someone set, wants to use it against them or interprets right. it a certain way that, that doesn't represent their best interest? Because at our core, we want to represent the interests of the individual and make sure they're benefiting. How do we keep this data private? Because it's it's their it's the most intimate data you have, you know, your oh, health yeah. and biometric data continuously. Oh my so gosh. again, we're and running up against somebody, this privacy. Yeah, yeah imagine somebody really knowing the, the triggers and the tells, uh, you know, that could cause anxiety or, uh, you know, what have you. Um, my right. goodness, that could be a very powerful weapon uh, in the wrong in the wrong hands and with the wrong and, intent. And misinterpreted. I mean, mm. look, I you know, I think about it in the context of what I did for 25 years, which was interventional heart procedures. So there mm-hmm. were many times in those 25 years, and I trained to do this work and experience helps where I'd been up all night. I still did a lot of cases. I had children. I was up all night with them or up all night in the hospital or whatever thing. I was sick. And you're still performing, right? And you're still expected and patients deserve for you to perform at a high level. Mm-hmm. What if someone was recording me constantly and decided that I wasn't going to be able to perform that day. Is that, would they have the information to know that? Michael Jordan performed in a playoff with a fever of 104, right? If you had yeah. data on him, you might've said he could never, because there are all these other factors that influence performance. So you really have to be mature and have restraint around the data you're collecting until you can validate that it actually is predictive. We worry a lot about that and we try to protect the data until we know and protect it from, from other people and keep it confidential mm-hmm. until we know that we can't bias that's going to work against that individual in a way that's not appropriate. So having, having reached this point in the discussion, which I think is, it is such an interesting uh, statement about the research you're doing, about its power uh, for good and about how important it is to ensure that it is um, continuously used for good. Let's, uh, let's close out like this. How does the work that you're doing uh, with your teams, with your partners, make it into the real world? In other words, how does it get from the lab, from the clinical setting, from the field, into the point where it's used in broader populations? Does that happen through partnerships? Does that happen through, 
you know, the establishment of new entities? How, how does that typically work? Well, you know, typically we're, we're a nonprofit research institution. We can mm-hmm. always spit off a company or provide services to a company. What we like to do is take established companies, say, in healthcare and say, okay, let us build this application. You're not used to you're not used to seeing drug or device company, the patient is your customer. Mm-hmm. You think it's me, the doctor that implants the $50,000 device or the guy who writes the prescription, right? Right. So let's, let's, let's help us realign around managing the disease and seeing the patient as the customer. Let's build some software, do some research, start, and you need that ground truth anyway in the healthcare marketplace. We work with startups who really may be very naive as to the, or not have the gravitas to really work and understand the the, the responsibility of, of real healthcare. And we'll say, mm. let, let us help you mature your solution, understand the privacy concerns, but you're innovators and you're disruptive and you're sassy and you're cool and you, you have a lot of brilliant people, but let's, let, let us help you shape this to a healthcare environment where mm. it's going to really um, uh, deserve the respect of a healthcare uh, uh, use case because we like your stuff and we think we can do that, whether it's AI, whether it's an entertainment solution that we want to medicalize or mm. a virtual human agent or a VR solution that's right now being used for entertainment that we want to use to help people understand what their cancer surgery is going to be so they're not traumatized afterward. So those are all very important roles. And then we want to get that stuff into the marketplace that we want to make sure it, it, it meets an unmet need, right? Sure. And I think the, the other thing that we do that will help things get to market is we can say to that company, say a regulated company, oh, this is the person you need to talk to in this technology company. This is where, these are, these are how you might be able to work with that individual because you need that, either that technology or that skill set. And um, so we convene a lot of people to help accelerate things to market. And then it's, oh, let's help you talk to regulators or consider the privacy things. And that's kind of the way we try to help get things out. But the marketplace is the ultimate decider, right? And, um, and, and I think we, we, we try to, and I, we do have a lot of respect for these individual players, but it's, it's very hard to go with this alone. I don't care if you're Amazon or the Mayo Clinic or USC or whomever. So we, we just try to create the connections and, and, and then get stuff out there uh, after we show that it's safe, right? And, and, and it's been adequately thought about, and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, study it more. So you reference that uh, really important role that you play as a convener, sitting at the intersection of so many of these uh, important areas. I know that one of the things that you've done for the last several years is to host an event uh, focused on body computing. Is that something that you see continuing? Will that continue to be sort of a centerpiece in, in terms of bringing uh, larger groups of people together? Yeah, and I think we're going to do it a little more creatively as we've as as the field has grown. We spend a day and people love it and we love it and we canvass the whole area. But now we're getting so deep in these different verticals that I think we'll do some 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 version of that, but maybe three or four where we dive deep into cybersecurity, privacy, mm. into human performance, and then into some of our solutions for regulated healthcare, um, because it's just becoming we the programs are getting depth. So we're going to need to do uh, some more exclusive events in addition to that large canvassing event. The good thing about our Center for Body Computing Annual Conference is we're able to get people together and say, this is where we collectively think it's going. And it's still a great place for people to meet each other. And and a lot of companies and cool things have started research projects as a result of that conference, really just for people talking to each other. I love it. Well, I am going to, as, as we wrap this up, I'm going to have a series of links on our show page 
uh, so that those who are interested in connecting with Dr. Saxon and with the Center for Body Computing at USC will have uh, immediate access to those through the show page. Uh, Leslie, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. The work that you're doing has been and continues to be fascinating and uh, just really appreciate you sharing some of it with our listeners today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.